as I was kind of breaking this down some months ago and, and looking at First Peter and, and, and where to have this divide in the text, I was looking at it, and, and in some sense, it does go with this longer section, but it made sense in my mind in that moment to break it where it is. But it's one of those things where not every passage lends itself to just this great uh, introductory remarks and illustrations. Sometimes it works that way, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, in my case, most of the time it doesn't, as most of you will readily admit. But as we look at this passage, it, it, it comes to me that in terms of what Peter has been doing over the course of this letter, he's been preparing them to suffer. He's been preparing them to suffer. He's been talking to them about what that looks like uh, in their community. So he says, you know, you need to submit to the king. You need to respect those in authority around you. He talked about what it looks like within the midst of their families. This is what that looks like. This is how uh, a husband relates to his wife, a wife to her husband. And so what all these things look like. But largely, the, the theme throughout this has been this is not your home and this is what it looks like to suffer in the midst of doing well for the kingdom. That's a hard and heavy message. Now, as they come and they receive this letter, they're not taking six months and breaking it a little bit at a time. The first time that they hear it, they would hear the whole letter, and then they would go back and, and begin to break it into these chunks and begin to ask the questions, well, how does this work with that, and how does this work with that? And so imagine then that we've all sat and we've all listened eagerly at this long-expected word and we've heard it, and we've read it, and it has washed over us with pain. Because there are surely those among us and, and those among Peter's day who are waiting to hear this word to say, it's okay, all this is going to be set right, all this is going to be stripped away, you can wear, on a, wear a smile on your face in an hour when we're done, because here's the secret that nobody else knows, here's the secret that nobody else is aware of. But as they sit there and they continue to hear this message, suffer, suffer well. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes among you. In every single instance, every single instance within this letter of suffering and deliverance is deliverance, full and final deliverance at the return of Jesus. And so Peter wrote to people who are in the midst of, of problems at home. Peter wrote to people who are in the midst of problems in the workplace. Peter wrote to people who had here and now, right now, real issues that they were dealing with. But every instance where he comes in and he talks about, it's going to be okay, it's never next week, it's never tomorrow, it's never an hour from now, it's never immediately. It's always directing them, indicating to them that their attention and their focus needs to be placed on Jesus in his return. And in that coming, in Christ's return, is the release from difficulty, is the release from suffering. And so what he gives us here in this section in verse 6 and 7, in some sense, are these parting words addressing this right before he moves into the next section where he begins to address our real enemy in the here and now, Satan. Let me read 6 and 7 and we'll walk through. Peter writes and says, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We come to this passage and it's so simple, yet so incredibly profound and difficult to apply in the here and now. Now Peter's first instruction to them is this command, but look back at verse 5. This is really where the command is fleshed out. Verse 5, halfway through, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. He's talking to everybody there. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. 
So he goes to this church, he goes to the leadership and the laity, the visitors, everybody here in a room very much like this, and he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Stop bickering, stop infighting, recognize you're all in this together, and be humble towards one another. What does that look like? It means being captivated and caught up with advancing the agenda and the interests in those beside you and not primarily yourselves. And so that's, that's kind of the first shade that he looks at in this, of being humble one towards another. But then he comes to that group, and there are certainly those in the room, and there are certainly those of you in this room this morning, that if I came to you and said, be humble, you'd say, back off and quit telling me what to do. Right? Right? And so those of you that if I walked up to you and I said, Chase, let me just tell you something, you need to be humble, Lydia would you know, punch you in the ribs, and Chase is very kind, he'd say, okay, and, but the person behind Chase comes up to him soon after I leave, and they say, I can't believe you let him talk to you like that. I can't believe that he would come to you and tell you to be humble, and, 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 and why didn't you push back on that? And that's what this inner thing is, isn't it? This inner thing in our lives is, is the, the, the understanding and manifestation of humility in us. It's not wildly liked in our community. You go into a job interview, you display humility. What does that indicate to them? You are likely not memorable. Somebody says, hey, you remember when uh, Bob came in yesterday? And they're like, who's that? They're like, the guy that blended into all the walls. They're like, oh, yes. We had to draw all these things out of him. We had to ask him, well, tell me, about, uh, tell me about your accolades. Tell me about what you've done. Tell me why you'd be a good candidate for this. And Bob just sat there and says, you know, I saw you had a need. I'd like to fill it. And so we had this understanding of humility that when you bring that into the text and what you read in this says, be humble, clothe yourselves with humility, you say, well, I can't do that. This is the place for that. But everywhere outside of this, that has to stop. And so what we find ourselves of being these on and off again people of humility, these people who, who may take a word from Donald Trump in the last couple of weeks, he says, I'm the most humble person I know. I'm oozing with humility. Do you see the hubris in that? Do you see the irony in that? He describes humility. He says we have to clothe ourselves with it. Now look at this. We didn't nail on this for a long time last week. This is why this is so important. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to be opposed to God. You want to work against God have nothing to do with humility. You want to be used by God. You want to be cared for by God. You better take humility seriously. A lot of times what we see in churches is we're so busy advancing our own agenda that we have no concern for those, of those, those interests and ideas of those around us. And we begin to see it be destructive. Why is that? Because that's pride creeping up in us. And the word we see here is an incredible treatment for churches, and it's an incredible treatment for all of us, even in our marital, friend, dating, and whatever relationship you find yourself in. Clothe yourself in humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives favor to the humble. In some sense, what Peter's doing in verses 6 and 7 is expounding upon this idea. And so look what he says there. The first command he has is humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't come in and says, prepare to be humbled. 
Prepare for God to lower the boom. Prepare for God to devastate everything about your life. In fact, in this, he comes in as this reflexive idea, much like you shave yourself or you dress yourself. He comes in and he describes it to each and every one of us. And he says, humble yourselves. Now, this is one of these things, i got to be honest, as I thought about it this week, what does that look like? What does that begin to, to look like for me in my life? What does that begin to look like for my wife, for my kids? How do I instruct them? How do I raise them up as, as men who would humble themselves, men who would desire to serve, men who would put others' interests ahead of themselves? Well, what we see in this passage is he's answering that question for us. He's giving us concrete examples of what that looks like and why we should do that and how we can be safe in the midst of that pursuit. But prior to all these things, we see at the heart of who Jesus is an, an amazing display of humility. And he beckons us to come into this. Jesus, who in Matthew eleven twenty eight, eleven twenty eight, he comes in and to the bedraggled, to the, to the beaten down, to the worn out, to all those who the cheese is sliding off the bread, to each and every one of them. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. First thing when we have to come into this, we have to ask ourselves the question, is God worth it, and do we trust him? Is God worth it, and do you trust him? If you read this, and you read any command in Scripture, and your response is, he's not worth it, then you're not engaged. In any command in scripture, when you come into this and your heart is militating and beating against, and you say, look, I don't know if he's trustworthy. I don't know if I can trust him. Maybe this is something I can walk along and, and, and observe and see, and if he's proving himself in this relationship to be trustworthy, then I'll fully step in. Then I'll fully buy in. What are Jesus' words there? Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden. Many of us this morning, many of us this morning, what humility looks like for us in our hearts is finally saying out loud, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I can't be smart enough. I can't work hard enough. I can't love my, life, my wife well enough. I can't yell at my kids. I just, I, just, I just can't keep from doing these things. I can't keep from doing the wrong things. And so I find myself trying to do the right thing, but in the midst of all of it, I'm just a complete and abject failure. It's to those. It's to those in the midst of this pursuit and recognizing your failure, your ineptitude, your inability to accomplish these things. It is those that Jesus sticks out his hand and invites you and says, come. These are the people he describes. This is why in, in Matthew 18, Jesus talking to the disciples and calling them, he has this, radically, this radical application for who is qualified for kingdom service. We would think it's, it's those who went to seminary or those who went to Bible college or those who have just an amazing way with words. But when Jesus is describing to the disciples on, on who is the greatest, he says, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like a child, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, verse 4, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And why is that? Because a child is under no illusion that they've accomplished anything in life. 
Over the course of our life, we build in accolades. You build in years of support. For, for some of us, those born later, you build in years of participation ribbons and say, yes, I participated. And for all these things, they're building in us this false identity that is warring against our true identity in Jesus. To come to Jesus is to be fully aware of all your failures, fully aware of all your faults, all the ways that your mother-in-law, your wife, your, your friends turn to you and say, you are a failure. There's nothing good in you. To look at those things, to apprise them, and to say, in some sense, they are absolutely true. God, would you redeem me in the midst of this mess? To be humble before the Lord is to absolutely be- to believe you're breathing nothing to the equation, but willingness to admit your brokenness. So when he comes to us and he says, humble yourselves. He's asking you in some sense to return to the beginning of the cross when you said there is all liability in me. There is nothing in me which makes me beautiful, but you can make me beautiful. In the cross of Jesus Christ, every dead thing is made alive. All darkness becomes light. This was us. This is who we used to be. And so in this return to humility, to wearing humility, to allowing it to wash over us, it's, it's remembering and admitting who we used to be and who we are now in him. And it makes us fully appreciative. He says, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are weighed down with sin and, and seeking to battle and, and make your way out of it and seeking to overcome it, Come. Come in your failure. Come in your mistakes, your misgivings, and your sin. Come in all the ways you've failed, God. Come again and fall at his feet. Because this is the place. This is the place of safety. And this is the place where he might uplift us. Look what he says here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, where? Under the mighty hand of God. You know, it's one thing to go out and and to confess all your faults and failures to those around you, but it's a completely different different thing in the midst of recognizing what those are to fall fall at the feet of God underneath his hand and allow him to support you, allow him to safeguard you. This is what this call is. But we recognize in, in the midst of these things, we receive so much different input from our friends, and, but, but all of those things ultimately find themselves to be empty and weak and anemic inasmuch as they do not give an endorsement to the place where the Christian is meant to be in the midst of humility. It's under the mighty hand of God. You know, the amazing thing is, First Peter, this is the only indication in the New Testament of this phrase being used. In the Old Testament, it's used over and over and over again. You see it in Exodus. It's very prominent within the book of Deuteronomy. You see it in Job. But the, most, the place where it's most frequently used is in a description of God's moving of the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. And it's this tender d- demonstration. It's this tender explanation of how he does this. It's over and over and over again. It says, this is where you were. You're dwelling in the land of the oppressor. You couldn't do anything to, to remedy, to bring about change for you. But God, with this strong and mighty hand, he drew you. God, with his strong and mighty hand, he delivered you. God, with his strong and mighty hand, he protects you. Christian, this morning I can tell you the only safe place for you to be is humble 
at the foot of the cross and humble under God's strong and mighty hand. Be under his hand, be under his safekeeping, his, his provision. Now, some of you read this and you say, well, this just sounds heavy-handed, it sounds authoritarian, it sounds like God is, is, is crushing me and grinding me, and you feel this oppression, but this illustration of hand is this hand over you, keeping you safe, and it's the same hand that is keeping you safe that the rest of verse 6 is proving true that he's going to lift you up with. This is why we humble ourselves under his hand. Why? So that at the proper time he may exalt you. One of the things that if you're in the midst of difficulty, you're in the midst of a sick child, your spouse is leaving you, you're about to lose your job at work, what do you want? You want immediate relief. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. You want the, the spiritual equivalent of that in your life right now. And so for somebody to come in and to tell you that, that, that your perspective is wrong hurts. It's wounding. It's wounding. And you point it in examples and illustrations of those around you or in your own life, and you say, no, I have seen clearly God deliver me. I would say, amen, hallelujah, that's fantastic. And you say, my friends tell me I should pray for God, to God for deliverance. I said, that's, that's an appropriate prayer, absolutely. But there are those of you in this room, and I know, I know you're out there, and this has been me occasionally in my life. There are things that we are in the midst of, and you pray and you say, God deliver me doesn't move. There's no deliverance. And you struggle and you cry out and, and you begin to look at it and you say, what is wicked? What is vile in me? And so you're taking this spiritual kind of, this test and you're checking off and you're like, read my Bible, check, three times today, check, check. Memorize scripture, check, nobody does that. Share the gospel, oh, star, that deserves a star, not a check. God, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody's doing that. Pray for my pastor, even if it's an imprecatory psalm. Check, star, tick. Those are the psalms where you ask for bad things to happen, in case you're, okay. And so you're kind of running down through and evaluating your life, and you get to the end of this, and much like Job, you say, there's nothing vile in me, there's nothing wrong in me, I've done nothing wrong. Why in the world am I suffering? And you go back to God and you begin to pray and you begin to pour out your heart and you say, look, I am wholly righteous before you. There is nothing wrong in me. There is nothing wicked in me. Why then are you a liar? Why have you lied to me? Why have you misled me? Why have you let me believe that you would exalt me and lift me up in the midst of this difficulty? And so you go to verses like this and people quote this verse to you. I'll tell you this morning, it's not because they don't care for you. It's not because they want to mislead you. It's because they misunderstand what he's saying. So it's not a promise that in the midst of difficulty, if you're living right before God, he's going to deliver you up out of it. Over the course of 1 Peter, over and over and over again, he's given us an indication that for the Christian, our hope isn't deliverance in this life, but our hope is deliverance full and final at the return of Jesus. And for the Christian, as we begin to look and change our focus on all the junk happening in our lives, as real and as difficult and as painful as it is, and we begin to focus our eyes and focus our attention on Christ and his return, recognize that in the midst of the crucible of life, he is safekeeping you and guarding you, even when you feel abandoned, even when you feel tempted to despair. 
and the full and final realization of deliverance and exaltation for the Christian is that their life might be lifted up and that it presented to God. That the inheritance which you've waited on, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, is finally and fully realized and given to you. This is what he's talking about. So much so that in the second century, when Eusebius is writing about this and describing a Christian interpretation of this in the second century, when he talked about the martyrs actually dying, and so they die at the stake, they are slaughtered in the arena, all these things. At that moment, he refers to that moment as the moment that they receive exaltation. This is the moment they're lifted up. Our focus has to change. All indications are that things are going to get worse for the Christian, not better. So if your focus is on alleviating current distress and despair, it's going to be hard for you. Your focus, your intensity of, of, of recognizing what is before you has to change. So it's not easy. I'm not telling you, just put a smile on your face. It's okay. When Jesus comes back, everything gets better. That only sounds good to the person who's not currently going through anything. Your wife has cancer. You've got cancer. Your child just died. You just lost your job. And you look at your life and say, man, it's all burning down around me. This is terrible. Peter's word to us, back in verse 12, said, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as you share in the sufferings of Christ. He's producing in you a world of sanctification and holiness. And the deliverance to which he will bring you at the return of Christ is everlasting and eternal. Our focus has to change. Our focus has to change. So you might ask then, well, what in the world does this look like? He's given me the why, but what is the how for humbling myself? So when verse 7, he answers that for us. He says, this is what it looks like. It's casting all your anxieties on him. It's casting all your anxieties on him. I can tell you that in the midst of college, I was facing some considerable anxiety. I had suffered something as a child and had never told anybody about it, and it was all kind of coming out when I hit about 22, and I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know kind of who to talk to. I, did, I didn't know what that meant about my identity or any of these things, and so I'm, my chest felt like it was always collapsing. I felt like I had a heavy weight on my chest at any and all times. All the color had left life. I, just, I felt devastated. And I felt like I was in this constant pit of despair. And so I had, I had many friends that weighed in, and, and, and I should have gone to somebody older and wiser, but I went to my roommates. That was a bad idea. And she began to kind of pour out your heart, and, and a 21-year-old's not, not prepared to receive the type of information I'm dumping on them, nor are they equipped to respond uh, adequately. And so one said, what you need to do is just... And he said, man, I've seen this on TV a thousand times. You just need to have a glass of wine every day. And so I said, this sounds fantastic. Well, I never really drank much wine before. And so I, what I found is that it was utterly disgusting. And so I get in there, and I'm buying big K coolers from Kroger, okay? It's, it's like Snapple, but in a can. It was nine cents a can. This is why I'm buying it. And so I'm taking that, and I'm, I'm a little bit of wine with a big K cooler, all to help with anxiety, all to help with anxiety. And then my other friend comes up. He says, no, what you need to do is exercise. So I'm running like crazy. I'm exercising. 
So now I'm tired and inebriated. And so neither one of these things seem to be working for me. And so all of these things are going, and, and, I, and I can tell you there is some relief. There's absolutely some relief from, from, from drinking a little bit, and, and I, I didn't drink to the point where I became an alcoholic, but I noticed some relief, and there was absolutely some relief from just being physically spent. I mean, just flat exhausted. Running till you couldn't run anymore. Doing push-ups till you couldn't do push-ups anymore. Why was I sleeping? Well, because I was too tired to do anything else, but when I would wake up, that same pressure, it's just right here. And I open my eyes, all I want to do is go back to sleep. I go back to sleep, and I sleep too much, then I feel lazy, and I felt like I hadn't done anything. It's just feeding back into the cycle. I'm just anxious. I'm, anxi- I'm full of anxiety. And so it's just welling up in me. I, I don't know what to do about it. And eventually, a, a much older, wiser friend says, man, you need counseling. You got to go talk to somebody about this. So I begin to kind of unpack my life to this counselor unpack 20 years of pain, 20 years of anguish, 20 years of dealing with it, trying to be good enough, trying to, to, to muster and make it. Being to unload these things, but in the process of unpacking all of this anguish, all of this, this misappropriated guilt, begin to recognize that all these things I was holding on to pridefully, selfishly, unwilling to let these things go and to cast them on God. Oh, that somebody would have come to me. That somebody would have said to me, what you need to do is humble yourself, and this is what that looks like, taking each and every one of those cares and worries and all of that anxiety and throwing it on God. This is absolutely what we see in this passage. The alcohol I drank made the pain go away temporarily. The the physical exercise I did made me so tired I couldn't deal with it. But every day it returned. I was dealing with symptoms and not dealing with the root issue, what he's talking about here. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And this is what that looks like. Take, Take each and every anxiety and worry you have today and throw those on God. I tell you that we are a sick and perverted people picking up anxieties like other people collect seashells. So we go around and there are so many things we can be anxious and have anxiety over. If you don't have anxiety about anything, I I begin to wonder if you're even alive out there. Do you have a pulse? Am I the only one? The number of things we're told to weigh in on and be involved with, it's no wonder that any of us isn't just catatonic or just shaking with fear all the time. We go around you you graduate, you're told you got to get a good job, so you put that, that jacket of anxiety on, you wear that, and things begin to go well until the company has cutbacks, and, and then you recognize that in the midst of this, lo and behold, you decide it'd be a good idea to get married, and so you put that jacket on, and now you begin to feel that pressure of now I'm not only spiritually responsible for myself, but for somebody else, and then, oh, what a great idea, let's have kids, why not have 15? And so you have all of those kids, and they're running around the house, and, and now I've got my spiritual life, her spiritual life, and, and kids whose names and birthdays, I have no idea, they're just here all the time. And so this, 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 this anxiety, this worry, is kind of captivating us. Or maybe that's a ridiculous example for you. You're, you're single. And so your friends tell you your life should be carefree. You shouldn't have a worry in the world. But, but your anxiety, your worry is, will I ever be married? What's life going to be like for me later? How are these things going to work out for me? So you begin to collect all the things that you don't have answers for. And you begin to wear them like despair. And it weighs heavy on you and... Occasionally, you begin to feel relief, and you feel relief until your mom, your dad, your friend says, are you dating anybody? Are you seeing anybody? How's that going for you? Not getting any younger. 
a particular lie of the enemy that tells you you have to have everything in life worked out. You need to have everything in life situated. It's unfortunate that we believe it so many times. So we bring all these things that we're unable to affect change in. We internalize them, we take them in. There's tremendous relief and freedom in the midst of this passage. Humbling yourselves in this posture isn't a display of weakness and ineptitude. It's trust. It's trust. And it's relying on the strength that God gives you, not the strength that you're able to muster on your own. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves at the foot of God. All of your anxiety, your cares, and your worries, cast them on him. The amazing thing about this is that, unfortunately, it's not a once-and-done deal. And can I tell you that this is a beautiful thing. If it's a once-and-done deal, and so you find yourself being anxious, and you throw that on God, and you say, oh, man, this is such a relief. Now I can go on vacation and not worry about these things. This is awesome. But the way God has designed us and allowed us to be, we are a people that continually pick up things that we don't need. We pick up things that we can't shoulder the burden of, and we, all of these things are meant to be cast back on him. And he invites you to do so. This is why in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, he invites all those who are weary to come to him, all those who are heavy laden to come to him and to cast down their burdens and to take up his yoke. Quit seeking to carry those things that are crushing you and let them go and give them over to the God who loves you. Look at this. It says, cast all your anxieties on him. Paul, writing on this same subject in the book of Philippians, chapter four, verses six and seven, wrote it this way. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The place the Christian finds solace and relief is not on their own. It's in the midst of community, casting all these things on God. This is where we find freedom and release. But you had to ask yourself earlier, is he worth it? And do you trust him? To trust God's word is to trust him. To trust him is to trust his word. And what his word commits to you today is that he absolutely cares for you, loves you. The amazing thing that as I look at this passage and kind of the way things break down in, in the tense of the verbs is that the idea when he comes to us, he says, humble yourselves. It is this timeless command meant to apply to our lives. When he says, cast all your anxieties on him, it is this timeless command which is meant to always see this is how we humble ourselves, is casting our anxieties, casting our cares on him. But the one thing in this that is continuous, everlasting, always in the past, always in the present, always on into the future, is this last thing here. He cares for you. The God who calls you to humility and calls you to humble yourself before him cares for you. This God that says, this is what it looks like. It's casting all these things on me. He cares for you. Many of us have been disappointed over the course of our lives. Our fathers, our husbands, our brothers, our wives, our sisters, our friends, our churches, our pastors have been this source of continual disappointment in our lives. Every time we've trusted somebody, they failed us. We've trusted them, we've opened our hearts, 
we've, we've kind of shown them who we are, the ugliness on the inside, the hurt, the wounds on the inside. Each and every time and experience that we've gone into this, they have failed us, disappointed us, not responded well to us. I can still remember when I went to my first roommate and I told him what was going on. And, and I'd known this guy for a number of years now. We've been high school friends as well. <laughs> it's funny now to think about it. It was terrifying at the time. He did not respond well. He said, you need help. I don't know how to get it for you. I can't talk to you about this. That's not right. And that wasn't encouraging. What we see in the midst of this is that in spite of all the failures that those around you have have given you in response to your inner anxiety, your inner turmoil and pain, God will not fail you. He will not disappoint you. His care for you is infinite. And his care for you is immediate. This morning we have an amazing opportunity to respond to the care of God. The care of God shown us in the humbling of the son who took on the form of a servant and who was obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. Are you willing to cast your cares on God? Are you willing to humble yourself before him? Or when everybody around you, the weak, the wounded, and the weary is coming to him, do you step back and say, it's okay. I can do this a little bit longer. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we come to you and ask that you would give us strength to confess brokenness, Not some of us in here, we're not ready to be honest with you, too busy lying to ourselves. Like the feeling, the the comfort, the the regular feeling of our anxiety, we wouldn't know what life was like without it. So God, we pray, or I pray this morning, that you would show to them your care for them, your provision for them. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we are made whole. We are complete. We're not looking for you to alleviate our symptoms, God, but to remove our malady. And so, God, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. The course of their lives has been trying to do it well enough, good enough, kind enough, polite enough. And the sense that they don't need Jesus, they don't believe in Jesus. God, my prayer for them is that you would make them humble in humility that they would cry out for you, that that they might see your love, care, and provision for them, even in their years of disbelief and the hardness of their own hearts. God, would you give to each of us strength this morning? Would you give to each of us peace this morning? And you help us to humble ourselves underneath your strong and mighty hand. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.